Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. In the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022... A horrific act of evil was committed by one individual, abruptly ending the lives of four kind, smart, and vibrant young people with promising futures. It occurred at 1122 King Road in Moscow, Idaho, where Zana Kernodal, 20 years old, Ethan Chapin, 20 years old, Maddie Mojin, 21 years old, and Kaylee Gonzalez, 21 years old, all lost their lives at the hands of an unknown violent offender. The intruder came prepared with a military-grade knife that was built for hand-to-hand combat with one main purpose, and that was to kill. These shocking murders of four young college students from the University of Idaho captivated a nation and terrorized a community. With hours of the unspeakable murders, we as the public were told that this was a crime of passion and the community was not at risk. We all imagined a love triangle or someone acting out of rage, perhaps overcome by unrequited love, But just as quickly as we were told that, while this appeared to be a targeted attack, the community was not safe and everyone should remain vigilant. Locals were told to call the police hotline with tips and within weeks, there was uncorroborated rumors and accusations. Most of the rumors were targeted against the two young adult survivors who had been sleeping in the basement level bedrooms at the time of the murders. There was also accusations of police incompetence. The family's pain of these young students is unimaginable. Someone had killed their children. Now, early on, there were unfair questions about how the surviving two roommates were able to sleep through the vicious attacks and murders of the four other people in the house. There were questions on why the dog Murphy, the golden doodle, didn't bark. It seemed like everyone was looking for someone to blame, somewhere to focus their anger and frustration. And most of all, there were theories and speculation on all forms of social media, terrible, hurtful, unsubstantiated speculative theories. What none of us knew at the time was that the police were very much in control of this investigation from day one. Through hard work, the police identified a suspect very early on in this case. Even when a gas station attendant identified the white Hyundai Elantra automobile in the area, the police were already onto that clue. While initially this appears to have been holdback evidence, and likely what first led them to Brian Koberger, they didn't let the accidental disclosure go to waste. 
After doing a video canvas immediately after the murders, police knew right away that the driver of the white Elantra was their likely suspect. Now, when the existence of the car was disclosed to the public, they used that leak for investigative purposes too. They told the public that the driver of the white Elantra was likely a witness and may know something they weren't even sure they knew. They strongly encouraged this person to come forward. They were hoping their suspect would insert himself into the investigation. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But now we know why that likely didn't happen. We know their suspect, Brian Koberger, had an undergraduate degree and a master's degree in criminology. We also know he was studying to become a doctoral candidate in his PhD program at Washington State University, where he was also a teaching assistant for three classes. Now, we would like to mention that Brian Koberger has the privilege and presumption of innocence. Until he is convicted of a crime, if any, he is seen as innocent under the eyes of the law. However, we are going to discuss how police identified him and why they believe they have charged the right person. Let's start with the area of Moscow, Idaho. It's a college town close to several universities, including the University of Idaho, where the victims attended, and Washington State University, where the suspect attended. We know that they haven't had a murder in their city for seven years, and we know that Sheriff Fry immediately set aside his ego and did everything possible to solve these horrific murders as quickly as possible. If you could ask for a textbook investigation, this one might have qualified. From the moment the arriving officers secured the crime scene, the local law enforcement called in the state police for their help with forensics and evidence collection. They also involved and invited the FBI to help with their case, which was likely the best thing to do for the investigation and why they were able to identify their suspect so quickly. This case began for the Moscow Police Department on November 13, 2022 at 11.58 p.m. when someone within the home called 911 to report someone unconscious. We believe it was one of the two roommates. However, we are going to refer to the one listed in the probable cause affidavit by her initials, which are D.M. We know that two hours after that phone call, the Idaho Police Department forensics team was on the scene in collecting and processing evidence. They intended to minimize as many mistakes as possible, and that began with the uncontaminated crime scene. This case has been a masterclass in investigative work. Now, we know that Officer Brett Payne, who authored the probable cause affidavit in this case, entered the home on the basement level from behind the home on King Road. We know the home was three stories, and you generally would enter on the second level if you were entering from the front door at street level. And we know that there are two rooms on the basement level, two rooms on the ground level entrance, which again is located on the second floor, and there were two more rooms on the top third level. DM and another roommate were allegedly in their rooms on the basement level when the attack occurred. Zana and Ethan were on the second level, where the killer likely entered through the kitchen sliding door of a low-to-the-ground balcony. And we know that Maddie and Kaylee were on the third floor with Kaylee's dog, Murphy. Murphy was found locked inside Kaylee's room. Kaylee and Maddie were both found in Maddie's room on the single bed. 
We know that at least two, and possibly four of the roommates, including the surviving roommates, had been at a fraternity party earlier that night at Sigma Chi. Sigma Chi is located directly across the street from the house. We know from the established timeline that Ethan and Zana returned to the home at 1.45 a.m. They had attended a party across the street at Ethan's fraternity house. Now, at 2 a.m., Madison and Kaylee returned home. They had been out at a local bar, then they ate at a food truck and got a ride home. None of them knew it at the time, but they all had only two and a half more hours to live. They also didn't know that starting at 3.29 a.m., there was a white Hyundai Elantra sedan circling their home. Police believed the driver was Brian Koberger, and they believed he had deadly intent. At 4 a.m., Zana received a DoorDash delivery. All of the roommates appeared to have been awake at the time. Previously, it was assumed that all of the students were sleeping in their beds when they were attacked and murdered. It was even assumed that the two girls downstairs slept through all four attacks and murders. Now we know that isn't true. These murders occurred in a shockingly short time frame. At the time that Xana received her DoorDash delivery, Deanne thought she heard Kaylee upstairs on the third floor playing with her dog. At 4.04 a.m., the white Hyundai Elantra makes its final pass around the house before it disappears. At 4.05 a.m., Deanne heard someone say there's someone here. At first, she thought it was Kaylee, but later she thought it might have been Xana. There was a fast food bag photographed on the kitchen counter next to the sliding glass door. Xana may have eaten in the kitchen when she heard someone jump onto the balcony outside the kitchen sliding window. She may have even seen someone, causing her to make the statement, someone is here. Now, we should note that this was a house filled with college students. They had guests coming and going on a regular occurrence. It's also possible that Xana dismissed this concern as someone without malevolent intent. She may have told Ethan, or Ethan may have even been asleep. There's still so many unknowns in this case, but we do know from Xana's cell phone records that at 4.12 a.m. she was scrolling on TikTok. All of the roommates on the second and third floor now have less than eight minutes to live. This is also the first time that DM looks out her bedroom door to investigate strange noises. As she's peeking out the door, she thinks she may hear sounds of someone crying coming from Xana's room. She goes back downstairs, but again, the noises are strong and they just don't sound quite right. They cause her to go back up the stairs a second time and peek out the door. This time, she hears a male voice say, it's okay, I'm gonna help you. Now it's important to note that DM knows Ethan very well. She knows his voice. Yet all she could identify was that the voice was male, which leads us to believe that it probably wasn't Ethan. It may have been the sadistic taunts of the killer before he silenced one of his victims. There's a security camera next door at the neighbor's house. At 4.17 a.m., that camera, which is 50 feet away from Xana's room, picked up the sounds of faint, indistinguishable voices, human-sounding whimpering, then a loud thud, and then the continuous barking of Murphy the dog. It's the same noises that alerted DM again that something just wasn't quite right. For the third time, she opened the door, and that's when she saw a black-clad figure walking towards her. He was wearing a black, balaclava-style mask with only his eyes showing. She described him as 5'10 or taller with an athletic build. 
Now keep in mind, Brian Koberger is six foot and weighs approximately 185 pounds. DM also immediately noticed he had bushy eyebrows. She's not sure if the figure she saw could see her in return, and it's unlikely because if he had, he probably wouldn't have allowed her to live, but we'll never quite know for sure. Next, she sees the dark figure walk right past her towards the sliding glass door in the kitchen. That's when DM was in, quote, a frozen shock phase and locked herself inside her room. At 4.20 a.m., the white Hyundai Elantra is seen on camera for the last time departing King Road at a very high rate of speed. We know all of this because of the first-person statement given by DM the next day and by video and cell phone data. Now, there's been a lot of speculation and terrible comments made about DM because she waited so long before calling 911. Well, this is a reminder that DM is an innocent surviving victim. Let's engage with empathy and remember that she is a young girl who has been given a life sentence of survivor's guilt. She'll have to continue to relive this trauma through the trial and perhaps the rest of her life. This is an event that will define and haunt her forever. So we ask you, if you want to discuss this case on social media with us, remember that DM is a victim too, and we ask that all comments towards her are respectful. The brutality of the crime scene alone would scar anyone for life. Even members of law enforcement have sought counseling after processing the crime scene in this case. So just be respectful, please. Now, very early on, police were able to identify the suspect's vehicle with the help of surveillance footage near the crime scene as a Hyundai Elantra. They were able to see the car arriving near the house and then speeding off the night of the murder. With this information, they spread the word to law enforcement to be on the lookout for this car. Four days later, on November 29th, Washington State University police officer Daniel Tiengo located a white 2015 Elantra in their system having a Pennsylvania license plate. This car was registered to the student Brian Kohlberger. His address was also attached to this information, and police were able to find this car matching the description conveniently parked in the parking lot close to where Brian lived on campus. But the only thing was that it had a Washington tag, not a Pennsylvania tag. However, the tag on the vehicle was registered to Brian Kohlberger. It was found that the vehicle was registered on November 18th to the state of Washington. This would have been five days after the murders had taken place. Maybe this could have been a planned trick up his sleeve to try to sit under the radar, being that the police may be looking for a white Elantra with PA tags. But then maybe it's a coincidence. And then when police pulled Brian's driver's license photo, they realized he fit DM's description of the suspect down to the bushy eyebrows. As police looked further into Brian's background, they learned that he was originally from Pennsylvania where he obtained two degrees. One was in psychology, and the second was a master's degree in criminology and cloud-based forensics. They also learned he was a current PhD student in criminology at WSU. They also discovered that Brian had applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. As part of the application process, Brian wrote an essay discussing his interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technical data in public safety operations. 
This would turn out to be quite ironic since this is how they first identified Brian as their main suspect, before any DNA evidence tying him to the crime scene. And as part of their investigation, they pulled search warrants for his cellular devices. And more specifically, they were interested in the time between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. on November 13th, 2022. That is when they discovered that before the murders, Brian's phone was turned off at 2.48 a.m. on the morning of the murder, and then it was turned back on at 4.48 a.m., somewhere near Idaho State Highway 95, south of Moscow. So at 5.30 a.m., Brian's phone and video surveillance corroborates Brian returning to his apartment in Pullman, Washington, which is just 8.4 miles from the crime scene and roughly a 10-minute drive away. The next bit of information may seem unbelievable, but the cell phone data shows that just five hours after the murder, Brian and his cell phone are back at the murder scene. Let me just repeat that. Five hours after the murder, the cell phone was pinged near the crime scene. This was after the murder, after he drove on Idaho State Highway 95, he came back to the murder scene. Was he impatient that his crime hadn't hit the news yet? Or was he going back for his missing knife sheath? We're not sure, but we do know he circled the home a few times before heading back to run some errands on his way back to Pullman. Now, we also learned that police believe that Brian had been stalking and fantasizing about these murders for a very long time. Someone, or several someones, at the King Road house had caught his interest for a period of at least six months. On August 21st, 2022, Brian was pulled over close to the home for a seatbelt violation. Before he received that ticket, his phone was near the King Road home between 10.34 p.m. and 11.35 p.m. There were at least 11 subsequent trips via his cell phone records near the murder scene. Now, we still don't have a motive for this crime. The prosecution doesn't have to prove motive, although many people have theories based on what we currently know. We know that Brian was horrifically bullied as a child and teen, mostly by females. We know that as he grew up, slimmed down, and began taking an interest in kickboxing, that he became more aggressive, often looking for reasons to engage in physical altercations. On some level, he went from being bullied to bullying others. And we know that a bar owner in Pennsylvania had an interesting story to tell the media. At his bar, the Seven Sirens Brewery Company, they have a policy where they scan IDs, and if customers get unruly or they act out in any way, there is a place for staff to make notes about their visit. The owner stated that Brian usually sat alone at his bar, observing and watching female patrons and female employees. He would often ask them unsettling questions and spark their gut intuition that this guy isn't safe. One of these comments regarding Brian said, quote, Hey, this guy makes creepy and inappropriate comments. Keep an eye on him. He'll have two or three beers and then just get a little too comfortable, end quote. By comfortable, Brian would ask women if they were alone, where they lived, and when they get off work. If women weren't interested in his questions, he would get angry and upset. And on one occasion, called a woman a bitch when she ignored his questions. On his final visit to the brewery, the owner went up to Brian and said, 
Hey, Brian, welcome back. We appreciate you coming back. I just wanted to talk to you real quick and make sure that you're going to be respectful this time and we're not going to have any issues. Brian was stunned by these comments and said he must have confused him with someone else. The bar owner said Brian finished his beer, left, and never returned. With Brian's background in criminology, it would be easy to make assumptions that this was an area he was studying not because he had a sincere desire to help catch bad guys, but rather he had a sincere desire in learning about himself or his dormant criminal urges. We know that for the last three years of Brian's educational pursuits due to the program he picked and because of the pandemic, his classes were all online. This was Brian's first time back on a college campus. Some forensic psychologists and FBI behavioral analysts have wondered if this was a long-standing fantasy that Brian had been thinking about committing for a very long time. Our friend Kate Wallinga is a forensic psychologist, and she is also the host of the award-winning Ignorance Was Blissed podcast. Kate has surmised that with Brian's birthday just a week after the murders, that perhaps this was an early birthday gift to himself. What a terrifying thought. And we also know for Brian's master's thesis, he conducted some online research by posting a survey on several Reddit forums, including one for ex-cons and then one for prisoners. His choice of wording and focus appears to be telling, although our friend Kate reminds us that Reddit isn't the real world and these types of surveys go through the lens of many professors in the criminology department before they would be approved for publication they do still lend some insight into his thought processes and area of interest. Some of the more interesting questions asked were focused on what the perpetrator was thinking and feeling at the time they committed their crimes. Most criminals aren't introspective and most crimes are impulsive rather than thought out. The questions themselves seem to be directed at serial killers or serial rapists rather than an average ex-con or prisoner. He began the survey by introducing himself and asking for volunteers to participate in his research study that, quote, seeks to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime, end quote. He asked questions on why and how they choose their victim, the goal of their crime, and how they thought and felt about accomplishing that goal. He was also interested in how they left the scene of their crime and anything they specifically did before leaving. And he also asked how they chose their target over others, as if they had a list to choose from. Perhaps Brian had a list to choose from. He also wanted to know how the criminals traveled to the locations of their crimes. These were just some of the questions that seemed out of place for a research study for ex-convicts. As we said, these seem more targeted to a killer with specific goals such as violent or sexual urges. Now, we don't know if Brian's crime was sexually motivated. There is an interesting expert field of forensic study specifically for sexually dysfunctional rapists. It is not uncommon for individuals who commit non-sexual violent crimes to experience a sense of gratification or pleasure during the act. In some of those instances, when a rapist can't sexually perform, they will use the knife as a substitute for penetration. We don't know anything this personal about Brian Koberger. All we know at this time is there seems to be a lot of circumstantial evidence against him, enough to warrant his arrest by a SWAT team at 3 o'clock in the morning. It makes you wonder if this wasn't intentional. 
It is important to note that the motivations behind criminal behavior can be complex and multifaceted and cannot be explained by any single factor. Sexual motivation can refer to a variety of different factors, including sexual desire, the desire for sexual gratification, or the desire to assert power and control over another person. To understand the motivations behind a person's actions, it is necessary to consider a range of factors, including their personal history, family history, mental health, and social and cultural context. It will be a very long time, if ever, before we can fully understand the true motives behind Brian Koberger's alleged acts. As this case progresses and eventually goes to trial, we will regularly update you as we follow this case through to adjudication. There will likely be a preliminary hearing where we will learn much more than we know now with the probable cause affidavit. There will also likely be a trial in this case as Brian Koberger, by his own words and actions, appears to be eager to defend himself against these criminal charges. We would love to hear your theories on this case. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Salad Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.